This is the Hidden Why Podcast, episode 574, with Charlie and Linda Lowe. Enjoy. G'day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. Great to have you here with me today for this interview. Today, I'm speaking with Charlie and Linda Bloom, previous guests on the show. Jump on hiddenwide.com to listen to those as well. A lot of great insights that they share individually uh, because they're two separate interviews. Today, we're discussing their new book, which is another collaboration, That Which Doesn't Kill Us. Our one couple became stronger at a broken place. It's really a memoir of their relationship and how they push through their differences and the struggles and challenges that come in the life of marriage. I mean, they got into it for love in the first place and they got through it with love, understanding. They share the techniques in this episode on how we can all you know, push through those challenges. I think it's such an important topic. If you look around us, I mean, divorce rates are high. I don't know what the statistic is today, but I think it's probably over 50%. Um, and that's that's crazy. So I think it's a really important topic, guys. They're just wonderful people. Um, you'll enjoy the conversation with them. If you don't walk away inspired to you know take the lessons away, inspired just to do what you can to improve your own relationships, if that is necessary, I would be very surprised. Guys, support the show by taking a look at the comments at thehiddenwide.com, episode 574. Let us know what you think, and you can also use the Amazon links to purchase any, purchase any of their books as well. Guys, thank you for tuning in for this episode. I hope you enjoy. Let me know what you think. Until the end, uh, enjoy. Cheers. Charlie and Linda, welcome back to the Hidden Why podcast, both previous guests on the show. It's been some time. How are you both? Doing very well. We just got back from a trip from India for three weeks. We had a splendid time. Oh, sounds rough. (laughs) I'd love to go to India. What was it like? Well, we saw some incredible sights. We saw the Taj Mahal. We went to the place where the Kama Sutra was carved into the walls. Really beautiful sculptures on the walls. And we got off the tourist path and we were able to go into some Indian families' homes. We went to a farm. I milked a goat. I held a baby goat. And we really uh, got a feel for the culture. And we had a terrific guide who taught us so much about India. It was really enlivening to be there. Wow, is this your first trip to India? Mine. Charlie's been before, years ago, but it was the first time I'd ever been. Right. What a great trip to um, take together. I'm sure that would have been an experience in itself. I, um, yeah, I'm passionate about the culture there, and I would certainly want to go there at some stage, so I'm looking forward to that trip myself. What did you learn about the uh, Kama Sutra and the carvings that you saw? Well, it was just so reassuring that there's a religion that celebrates the body and sensuality and sexuality, because so many religions, you know, have, have a dark attitude about it. And so I just saw it as a celebration of a gift from Mother Nature. Yeah, right. What about yourself, Charlie? Um, well, it, it, was, um, it was interesting to see that uh, even way over there and way back then, they s- still did all the stuff that we do today. <laughs> um, and, and they uh, very graphically and beautifully uh, uh, had um, documented this through carvings, which were quite uh, extraordinary. Mm. Uh, 
so that part of the trip was great. And, you know, overall, I had been there before to India, but hadn't really immersed, been immersed in the culture the way we were this time. And um, it, it was a real eye-opener to see how, <clears throat> um, how different our cultures are, and yet underneath the, the cultural differences, how absolutely similar and even identical we all are as human beings. Mm, yeah. This, that things are so different, and at the same time, we're so much the same. You know, we went through a really impoverished section of one of the city that our uh, guide called Shantytown. And I was afraid about going because I thought I was going to be so saddened and see a bunch of emaciated kids, you know, dirty and raggedy clothes. And I was really reassured that even in the poor sections, the kids were happy and they were clean and they were energetic and they played with us and they high-fived us and they followed Charlie around like the Pied Piper because he's so playful. And I I realized that I had the wrong idea about the, the poverty in India and that it wasn't crushing and heartbreaking the way I feared that it was going to be. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty insightful. I think something that we could learn from in the West, and, and sometimes I feel that the novelty of modern day society and, and all that we have at our fingertips these days causes a lot of our suffering. And um, perhaps being without it and letting go, and and you know just having the basics covered is is what what we all need. And that sounds like there's yep. similarities there that you might have discovered as well. And the basics, the basic connections, the nets and webs of connection for the community, do you know that they're spiritually rich because of the way they're connected? And I think people in our country here in the U.S., so many people are so lonely and feel so disconnected, and that's a a source of great unhappiness. Mm, Absolutely. It's it's something about that, that sense of community and you know, I think the digital community has taken away that interaction and, and those relationships, the bonding, which I know you guys probably can shed a lot more light on as well. But um, certainly uh, that seems to be a bit lacking. Uh, and that's, you know, the fundamental need. We, we have that fundamental need to belong and to have those thriving relationships. Otherwise, it does bring us into uh, or can bring us into some dark places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, look, I'm uh, interested to get into this conversation today, and, and we've touched on an interesting point there, which I'd like to start on as well. But you guys have written a book, That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. Before we jump into it, can I just perhaps ask you both, um, what brought you to writing this book and what is its purpose? Well, this was actually, Lee, the very first book we ever wrote, and that was over two decades ago. And we put it aside mm. because of an agent that we really respected said, who's going to want to read your memoir? You better go and write some other books first and make your mark so that people will be interested in knowing how did you learn all this about relationship? So we put it aside for a while, and then we wrote the other three books, and we felt like the time had come to actually expose it. And I'm glad that I was a lot stronger because it's pretty nitty-gritty story with a lot of shadow and a lot of struggle and suffering. Fortunately, it was way back in the 80s, and we've been enjoying a much easier time of it in recent decades. But I wrote it originally 
because I was healing from the trauma of almost separating and divorcing from Charlie, who I loved and adored. But we had an irreconcilable difference that just wouldn't give way, no matter how much we discussed it and we argued and I did everything I could think of. And mm. I, it, it looked like we were going to have to break our family up and we dangled on the edge of divorce and I was in a high stress state for an extended period of time. And then we finally broke through yeah. and we finally found a way that we could be together that would be satisfying to both of us. But it was a pretty close call. And so that was the original impulse is just to understand what happened to us, that we were so lost and so dazed and confused and so angry and so unforgiving for such a long time. And then I realized I have a debt of gratitude to the people who helped me during that time because we got some really good help, yeah. particularly from Stephen and Andrea Levine. And I felt a responsibility to pay it forward to some other couples who were struggling. And um, that became a strong impetus to risk putting our dark story out there in front of the public to see. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it, it's great. And I, I believe you went... Um Wrote, wrote wrote alternative chapters each. Is that is that the story? Yeah, we alternated, um, yeah. and uh, it's kind of unique in in that sense. Uh, I've only read uh, one or two other memoirs that have been written in this style, joint memoirs, where um, every um, every other chapter in, uh, has. The, the person, um, each of our perspectives in it. So when we're writing about the uh, a particular time uh, that was that we're we're focusing on, and the book covers a ten-year period of time, and so um, like for example, the the first the first chapter covers uh, a period of, of about a year and a half. And um, so I would write my experience of what happened, and then um, Linda would write hers. And uh, we pretty much took out a lot of the uh, repetitions, so we wouldn't actually be objectively describing the same things. But what we would be writing about is our individual experience, what we were thinking, what we were feeling, what was, mo what was motivating us to do or say the things that we were doing. Um, one of the things that we really wanted to be able to do in this book, and I think we did it pretty successfully, was to um, portray um, our inner experience as well as what was outwardly happening in our lives. So we were not only writing about the things that we did, but we were writing about what we were feeling, what we were thinking, what was going on within us, what was motivating us to do that. And um, there's so it's a kind of a multi-dimensional book in which the reader gets a sense of what it was like to be inside of our skin and how at times our perspective on things was radically, absolutely different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How did you um so on those those periods of your life, how did you bring together the chapters or, or was this done 
in a way that would give the readers the learnings or is it actually best because I suppose in, in all relationships there's two people and um, there's always going to be two differing perspectives, isn't there? So maybe that's the benefit of having um, both of you share that, that inner story. Well, when you read Charlie's chapters, a whole lot of what he is going through is his professional development. And he's he's soaring and he's excited and he's enthusiastic about building his career and the successes he's having in his career and mastering the challenges of his career. And you read my chapters is what is a feminist like me doing home with these three little kids? You know, when we had an agreement that we were going to mutually support each other's careers and mine's in the toilet and his is soaring and uh, this broken agreement's really aggravating me because here here I'm left doing the traditional woman role, which is what I was so careful that I didn't want to get into a relationship like that. And when I said this is not working for me, he was so enthralled with his job he just couldn't leave. He wouldn't leave. And um, I I just was it was not even partially resembling the life that I wanted to live. And so we we were living in different worlds. And for a woman who's maybe more independent um, than I, maybe she would have made a, a better go of it. But I'm a real connector. I'm a real romantic. I wanted to have partnership with Charlie. I had a strong attachment to what I wanted our family life to live, look like. I wanted him to be at the dinner table and at the, you know, at the family meeting and at the parent-child meetings at school, and I wanted him to, you know, coach Little League Baseball, and he was just gone three weeks out of every month, and I was... I was really not okay on it, and we were gridlocked. Right. And I was not budging, because this is, you know, the life that I had visioned for me all of my life since I was a little child, and he told me, you know, if if I were to give up this job that I am, it's job charming for me, if I was to give it up, our marriage wouldn't be worth anything because I would resent you so much from, you know, insisting that I leave something that's so important to me. And so we, we were in that very difficult place. Okay. And I had to let go of my vision and my white knuckle grip of what I wanted our marriage and family to look like because it was so different from what it was that I was really wanting. And I had to practice patience and commitment that was a, to d- devise a bigger scale than I had ever thought that I'd ever have to do. I considered myself a patient person and I committed, you know, considered myself a very committed wife. But the, the, commitment and the patience that I had to presence and grow in myself was much bigger than I had ever thought would be required. Yeah, okay. Hence the uh, the chapter, chapter three, I don't remember agreeing to this. Um, I think that sort of shares your story there about, about that experience and um, how you visioned it to be, but um, wasn't actually playing out as expected. I start out that chapter by saying, who are you? even know who you've become if i met you now i wouldn't be attracted to you i certainly wouldn't marry you that's how low we sunk so was was the major difficulty um that you mentioned before linda 
Um, you know, you said you got to that sort of break point where you just pushed through and, and finally made it at the other end. But was the major difficulty or difference that you were both experiences that, that Charlie was indeed, um, you know, focusing on his career and, and having that um, sense of responsibility almost um, whilst you were at home, you know, uh, looking after the kids and minding the home. Was that the, the struggle that was represented throughout this story? Yes, the struggle took a lot of different forms, and I'm I'm very clear that he was addicted to his work, and work addiction is kind of the invisible addiction. It's a kind of an addiction that's hidden and actually applauded by many cultures. So it's not really seen as it's, yeah. it's, it does. It sounds like it's you know. Uh, not so dysfunctional as it actually is. And what a toll it took on Charlie, not just on the family. Do you know that so many parts of his life that had been pleasurable before, he could, he could tell you about that, exercising, free time, solitude, playing his guitar. A lot of that got um, thrown by the wayside for his work. And it was a tremendous... Um, breakthrough when he finally got complete with that experience and was able to let it go. And he should tell you about it in his own words because it was a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, okay. Look, I'd like to go there, Charlie. What what I'm interested in, I mean, this this is so pertinent, this, this conversation, to um, current marriages and people out there uh, in this experience. And I can relate because I've currently, um, you know, I've had those feelings myself as a male, um, person part of this relationship we've got two young girls um, we've just made a significant move in our life back from Japan to Australia um, you know I'm trying to focus on career and, and earning an income so that my partner can stay at home and raise the kids um, whilst also you know allowing her the opportunities to, to pursue something that she's passionate about to give her activity outside the home I suppose um, and it is a fine balance and especially in this day and age I don't know how relative it is back, um, you know, in the 80s. Um, but certainly now it seems like if both couples aren't working, um, how do you make ends meet? How do you have, you know, this kind of lifestyle that most people desire these days? Um, and I'm sure that's bringing a lot of challenges to the relationship, if not um, one of the primary areas, because from there that affects everything. That affects your sex life. That affects how you perceive each other. Um, you know, all these things come about. That affects the money, and, and money is a big killer of relationships as well. Um, it probably affects trust. I mean, you could probably share a lot more insight here, but if we look at the stats with divorce rates, I don't know what it is like over there, but I, I think it's um, probably creeping above 50% at the moment, um, which is devastating when you think about the kids that have come out of these relationships as well and now growing up with single parents and, and what's that going to cause in the future. Um, so, look, it's a really, really important issue. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to, to hear your story, Charlie, about about that balance. You know, how did you how did you feel in that in that moment of, you know, wanting to go out there and strive for your career? Well, you you just hit on every single major theme of our story. Uh, all those things that you mentioned about the places where couples and families are challenged because of the the, the kind of competing commitments that we have increasingly more so these days to both provide material for our, our families. And when I say we, I mean men and women now. 
Mm. Um, when I grew up, I don't know about you, but I grew up uh, in the 50s and 60s, and my mother didn't work. I mean, we weren't well off, but um, we could get by okay, and, you know, nobody went hungry and pay the bills with with one, um, you know, middle-class income. That's not possible anymore. And at the same time, there's the expectation that our children are going to have ideal lives. And, you know, you see so many parents who are torn between working and sometimes often more than one job apiece, Hmm. Uh, and at the same time, feeling obliged to provide an ideal environment for their child, which means they're going to provide them with all kinds of opportunities for sports and piano lessons and good schools. And and the pressure on people to be able to um, accommodate these conflicting, um, at times overwhelming demands is extraordinary. And the, the, the book that, you know, our book um, focuses on the years 1982 to 92, which was, you know, pretty much another generation back. Yeah. And um, although we were subject to those same things, those same influences, um, I think it's much worse now. Um, and um, it, it, it puts enormous stress on the family. And ironically, when you know we're trying to fulfill all of the expectations <clears throat> that, that we have from through the media and through the culture, and uh, we, we, we end up diminishing the possibility, for creating what we really want, because it's just too much. Nothing gets enough time and energy. And that's really my experience was uh, what I was writing about. Um, what I was writing about was I had a job that was very fulfilling personally, and, and, and I felt like I was really making a difference in the lives of other people, too. Um, but what it required of me was a level of loyalty and commitment um, that prevented me from giving the amount and the quality of time and energy to my family that I had given before I got this new career. Yeah. And um, I, I, I never felt like I was giving enough to either my work or my family hmm. and didn't have anything left over for anything else. And I still didn't feel I was giving it all but it still didn't feel like it was ever enough. And so what sort of, what sort of, sorry, what sort of um, emotions or feelings or angst did that cause in your life? Like that feeling that, you know, you're, you're pushing so hard into your career, um, even then not feeling like you're giving that enough. And then knowingly, um, you know, and respectfully too, not being able to give enough at the home to be given enough to a family. I mean, where did that lead you? Well, it, it left me feeling like I was always just a step away from losing one or the other or both. Mm. And so there was a lot of anxiety there. However, I did use my work to medicate. Um, and that's why I think yeah, Linda's right. correct 
when, when she characterizes it as an addiction. An addiction is any kind of a substance or a process that you use in order to manage uncomfortable feelings like pain, fear, anxiety, depression. Hmm. So, so I did use it addictively. Yeah, I can relate uh, to that. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did get a lot of pleasure out of the job. So when I was on the road, when I was working, um, it, was, it wasn't a problem because I was so thoroughly immersed in the work. And it was so gratifying. And I was learning so much that um, it's like uh, it didn't – that other side didn't even exist. But then um, – <laughs> uh, I would come home at the end of the week, and it would all be waiting for me at home. And he'd be exhausted, so he wasn't even, you know, up to really participating in the family much when he came home because he worked an 80-hour week, and he was flying all over the United States and Canada, and he would wake up in hotels. He wouldn't even know what city he was in, Hmm. and so... You know, he was he was stressed and tired, and I was stressed and tired because I was virtually a single parent during a lot of that time. Yeah. And he would have a day that he would catch up, and then he'd be off to the airport, you know, wash his clothes and put them back in the suitcase and back to the airport and fly to another city. Mm. And I was scared out of my mind because heart disease runs in Charlie's family, and his dad had had serious heart attacks before he was 40. And that was Charlie's age at the time. He was, you know, approaching 40. And I thought, this this job demands so much of him, I, I'm afraid he's literally going to die. Mm, yeah. You, you said, uh, Lee, that you, you lived in Japan for a while. Are you familiar with the term um, Kiroshi syndrome? Kiroshi syndrome. It rings a bell, but no. You have to refresh yes. It literally, it means to literally death from overwork. And it is so common right. in Japan that they actually have a term for it. And there's, you know, thousands of people who um, every year, more than, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands who have died literally from overwork. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it really is possible to work yourself to death. Absolutely. I mean, going back to the, the marriage situation, there's, there is so much societal pressure, cultural pressure put onto us um, in this day and age. I don't know if it means it's not possible to live that sort of life that we, you know, if, I think at the heart, we, we both men and women, want to have you know a family lifestyle where we can be together and have that real good bonding time as much as we possibly can while still being able to you know have a good level of life i think perhaps you know the modern society we have this new desire for too much or or a lot um, and we think we need it to live a happy life and perhaps that's a condition um, of the condition itself is that we think we need all this extra stuff um, because you know we're not happy we're not fundamentally connecting as humans should connect in our relationships, in our family units, in our tribes. And perhaps that's taking, um, taking us away from all that. And look, I, I actually went to Japan on that note um, with my family. We decided to pack up everything and go over there and um, just have that cultural experience. Our kids were uh, both under uh, five. I think we had four and one. Um, so, you know, they're at that age where we could sort of manage it. And we did. We lived that lifestyle where we both worked part-time and we had so much time together. Yeah, we didn't have millions of dollars in the bank coming in, but we had a really great lifestyle. And then coming back to where we are now, 
I, I'm really conscious that, you know, my wife is great with the kids. She's, um, you know, better, does a better job in their upbringing, I think, than I do. I have a role to play for sure. Um, but I'm conscious of that and I really want to be that person that can support her so she can do that because I think that's so important uh, for the future of our kids. And that's, you know, yes, she could go back to work and we could earn more money, um, but what's more important right now? And, and for me, it's just, look, stepping back and understanding that it is for the kids, but then that puts a lot of pressure on me and I know it puts a lot of pressure on her. I, I don't know exactly how she feels, I feel, but, um, you know, there's there's pressure on both of us. Um, both for me, I really feel the the need to have to work to support the family. I feel the need to have to earn more so we can do more things as a family that um, modern society sort of uh, demands of us. Um, and at the same time, you know, I'd want her to be here for the kids, but I also want her to be able to pursue her interests. Um, and it's a really fine balance. And that sounds like, uh, you know, a lot of what you guys experienced and went through and, and the story you share in this book. Um, so I don't know if you just want to, clarifying anything I said there first yes our work family balance was shot do you know it was completely out of kilter and the Charlie's job got the lion's share of his time and attention and energy and neither one of us, Charlie and Linda Bloom, are very materially oriented. And I can live very simply, happily. And we did, you know, before we moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, we lived quite simply. And we both you were very moderate in our careers. And when he became a corporate man, he had a personality change. And both of us were shocked to see how hard-driving and ambitious he was. And th this was a real shocker. And we had a number of arguments because he would say things like, I'm doing this for the family. And I'd say, don't give me that crap because I'm willing to live in a tent. Don't tell me that you're doing this for us. I don't I want you. I feel the same way. <laughs> and so to me, when he would say that he was putting family first, that did not add up in my book. I thought that was just a rationalization and a justification that he was giving me because he was putting his work first above our marriage and above family life. And that would really drive me up the wall. So we had a lot of arguments about that. And I want to make the point, Lee, that one of the reasons that we suffered so much during that time is because we argued a lot. Yep. And we both were under the gas of the myth that we had to get it off our chest. And I believed, and I think Charlie did too, that you grow ulcers or tumors or something if you hold it in. And we weren't evolved enough to know that there is a way in which you can express yourself, you know, without the judgment and the criticism that invites retaliation. And so we had an already difficult situation where we were separated a lot and I was lonely and missing him. And he was stressed because of the challenges of his job. It was a high demand job. But we made it more difficult than it really had to be because we didn't know enough about how to express our vulnerable feelings with each other our fears and our needs and our pain and our suffering. And so we fought a lot. And that really, it made a difficult situation even more hideous. And so fortunately, we got some good help. And we learned 
how to um, be with the intensity of our feelings without without acting them out in such an angry, hostile, uh, bitter way. And we learned how to make every minute count of the precious little time that we were together. And the one day a week that Charlie would be home, we let the rest of the world fade away. Do you know we would get the kids off to school and really have meaningful connection with each other and relax and enjoy each other and put the differences aside so we would have sacred time together and I could make it one more week. And that is some part of the teaching that comes through in the book about how to make the time that you do have together if you have two uh, demanding jobs. And, you know, maybe you've got uh, older relatives that you're taking care of, mom and dad or mother-in-law or father-in-law. Maybe you've got little kids that require a lot of time and attention. Maybe you have political commitments or church commitments or spiritual practice. And so... We, we think that it really comes through in the book about whatever the competing urgencies are of your life, to treasure the time of the romantic partnership and to really nourish it as if it's a living entity, like it's a new baby in the family that needs to be cleaned up and the diaper changed and nourishing food and play. Mm. Yeah, interesting, uh, interesting insights to everything you said there, and I, I can relate to a few things, um, you know, particularly around. I feel obliged to go out there and work, and then I do what I do uh, for the family, and uh, you know that brings the arguments about money and my time spent with the kids, and you know I can totally relate um, to Charlie. I'm um, not having the energy on the, you know, it might be the weekends um, because you've worked so hard, and you know it just it does it sort of drains you, and, and vice versa, even for the woman, um, you know they just probably want a little bit of time for themselves. Um, you know, to do their own things or whatever, or just even to connect um, with each other. Um, and that certainly is impacted by the, the way we live our lives at the moment. So that's probably, you know, the, the for me, the most pertinent hurdle to come over. You touched on another point there about, you know, arguing. Um, certainly for me and my relationship, we don't seem to argue much. We both seem to suppress more than argue. So perhaps we're both getting ulcers as well. Uh, I'm not too sure. Hopefully not. Um, and, you know, when it does boil out, um, that whole issue of vulnerability, and I think that's a really important word that you said before, Linda, I think that's what we're, we're, most relationships are scared of bringing to the table is that sense of vulnerability. So we, we dodge it in any which way we can through numbing activities, drinking, whatever, drugs, um, through avoidance, you know, of the situation, through avoiding each other, um, through putting blame and judgment on one another. And, and these things are going to lead us down the, the paths that we don't want to go down. So... That piece of vulnerability, I think that's really important to touch on for a moment. How do we bring that to the relationship? How do both parties, you know, it just seems like we should be totally free and, and vulnerable and comfortable with each other, but it's it's not. Yeah, it does seem that way. I mean, it, it's kind of, um, it, it, it's confusing that, you know, what, seems like it should be the most natural thing in the world, which is to express um, our natural feelings of um, love and support for each other, because it's, it's part of our nature. Why is that so difficult? But when you, when you talk about vulnerability, what, what vulnerability really means, if you were to look that word up in the dictionary, what you would 
see as the definition for it is it is the it's a state of being in which uh, one is unprotected and subject to being harmed or injured. So vulnerability means um, dropping your defenses, your physical, your psychological, emotional defenses that we use to avoid getting our bodies hurt or our feelings hurt. And um, when, when we're not willing to be vulnerable, there's a lot of fear. And the way we deal with fear generally is to become uh, more defensive, which can take a lot of different forms. And whatever form it takes, the problem is, is that when we're being defensive, there's no possibility of an authentic, meaningful, emotional connection with another person. Yeah. Because we're on our guard, our defenses are up, we're, we're not available, we're not emotionally available, we're not really fully present because we're using some strategy to minimize or avoid some kind of pain. So the irony is, is that you know, we're working so hard to, uh, to be happier in our lives the source of happiness, according to um, m most psychologists, has to do with the quality of relationships. There's a direct correlation between the quality of your relationships and your mood and your feeling of well-being and happiness. So we, we all want the same thing, yeah. and we're working so hard to get it, but actually a lot of the things we're doing are taking us away from happiness. Mm. Yeah. So what are some techniques, guys? I'm conscious of the time here. I just want to go into some techniques. Um, and I know we've touched on a few throughout the conversation, but what are some techniques that can really help um, that you guys learned on your journey um, to bring our relationship closer together? What are some of the practices, perhaps, um, that you guys started to to work on and do? And I know it starts with perhaps you know finding that support, some counselling. You guys are both counsellors as well, and, and certainly it sounds like you had great support in, in the time of need. Um, but moving beyond that, what are some other things that we can take away from this conversation to perhaps, you know, look at it in our own relationship and maybe even bring some into it? Well, it was a major ta a turning point for me when I just was at the very, very low point and desperate, and I decided to study meditation with Jack Cornfield, oh, and I really dedicated myself to learning to be more still, to quiet my mind down, because my mind was on fire, and to cool myself down, to center myself, to ground myself. And I did a regular practice of forgiveness meditation for a year. That was my main practice. And the, well, I just would sit there and I would say, um, Charlie, I forgive you for not being present here to help me bring these kids up. And I forgive you for being lost in workaholism. And I forgive you for making your job a higher priority than the family. And I'm visioning that you will come back to us at the first possible moment. And I see that you have this work that you need to do. There's something in you driving you to accomplish mastery in this area. And I'm going to practice patience. And some days I couldn't do it. And sometimes I'd say, 
say, I forgive you. No, I don't, you asshole. Mm. And then you have to, you know, wait and another time I could do it. And the mindfulness practice in Vipassana, they talk about cultivating the warm heart of compassion. And I tried my best to understand why he had embarked on this path and to cultivate tolerance and acceptance and non-judgmental awareness. And it really helped a lot, particularly that last year when I was so exhausted because it was a cumulative effect of not having enough support and you know, doing this, um, what I consider now is a really heroic job of trying to bring up three small, very spirited children. And I offer this in the book. And when we do counseling with people, you know, we do Skype and phone and some in-person counseling. And I tell people that it's really helpful if they do a meditation practice just to help you to center and ground yourself so that your feelings aren't throwing you all over the place and, you know, running your life amok. And when I could settle down and calm down, the chances of diving down below the irritability, below the resentment, and below the anger at not having the life that I wanted to have, to be able to touch the more vulnerable feelings of sadness, of loneliness, of missing Charlie, of the longing of wanting the family to be united once again, that made a difference. Do you know, if I could speak to him about those tender feelings rather than the anger, then that would invite him to connect with me rather than back him up and be repulsed by, you know, the bitch on wheels is coming at me again. Mm. Yeah, excellent. I think that's at the forefront of um, pretty much everything I, I do in my life uh, is that is that practice of meditation, whatever sort of form that is. But, yeah, excellent. Now, what about yourself, Charlie? Yeah, yeah. Um the practice of um, mindfulness meditation, um, not not just um, uh, as a sitting practice, but just being mindful throughout the day, just being aware, bringing what Linda referred to as that non-judging awareness and, and presencing myself with my experience without resistance or attachment, without judgment. Um, easier said than done, but mm. with practice, it is, you know, it can become um, a, a natural way of being. And I think that for both of us, that was a big factor, that we were, we were able to get sufficiently distant from our reactivity to, to be able to be present with our feelings, good and bad, without being in reaction to them, because it was when we were in reaction Hmm. to our feelings that we would end up uh, doing and saying things that were really very unskillful and hurtful to each other. And and when we could begin to see, I love this person, I don't want to hurt her, she's struggling just like I am, and it's really, she's not the enemy. We are in a situation that is really um, demanding so much from us that we're not able to fulfill our own and each other's basic needs. And and what happened for me was, um, as I really got clear about that, that the challenge here is not to change Linda. 
the challenge is to either deal with this situation more effectively so that I'm not drained and, you know, feeling wasted so much of the time. But the challenge here is, is to e either either come to terms with this and deal with it more effectively. And if I can't do that, to, to change my, my world, to change my situation. Yeah. And ultimately, um, that's what I chose to do after being with the company for um, about five, five and a half years. Um, I, I really had a, a very profound, dramatic, um, I would say, an, kind of an instantaneous revelation. And the revelation was, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. And I need to move on and I need to I need to let this go. And um, uh, the, we I, I write about that pretty specifically in the book about what that experience actually was, how that happened, what that was like to do that. And then what it was like to to make that decision mm. without any idea of what am I going to do now? Because, yeah. you know, whenever I've <clears throat> left jobs in the past, I've always had something to go to. But um, I didn't have anything to go to this time. All I knew is that I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And one of the things that I learned from that was that, you know, sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to step into the unknown, even though, you know, you might be scared to death to do it. But it's like you're on the edge of a, a window and in a burning building. And, you know, you don't know if you're going to survive if you jump. But all you know for sure is that I can't stay here. Yeah. And I was overjoyed when he finally decided to let go of that corporate job. And I just totally trusted we will figure something out because we're together and we're unified now. Yeah. Yeah, look, obviously a lot of commitment towards each other there. Um, there must be a lot more in-depth um, that you go to in the book around, you know, communicating uh, creating the time for each other so you can share that because yeah. I, I don't assume it was just Charlie one day packing up and coming home and saying, "Hey, I just left the corporate job." I assume it happened in collaboration. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it did absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, and and I can totally relate. I feel like I do that um, quite often. Actually, sometimes I think I do it too often. But if if something's not right in my life, I think, well, this can't carry on because in the past I've let it carry on for too long, and not that long, not five years even. You know, like three, four years is is a long time for me to let something go by where it's just not really giving me that much uh, sense of meaning in my life. And if it's not, then I need to, you know, do something dramatically different and just trust uh, that the universe, um, as woo-woo to some people that might sound, will, will back me and trust that I'll back myself. And now that I'm in a relationship, <laughs> trust that we'll both, you know, work together to make it work. And, um, you know, we go through that, but it, it's, you know, again, creating the time, you mentioned that in this episode, um, we didn't touch on much of the communication side of things, but really, you know, connecting and communicating. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to wrap it up there, and I'd just like to direct people, uh, first of all, to um, a couple of the previous episodes um, that we had with both of you individually. Um, so I'll stick the links into the show notes, because I know we talked a lot about relationships from both your perspectives in each of those episodes, respectively. So that would be a good place to start on some of more of the techniques and uh, methods on how to, to improve relationships. Uh, but also your new book, um, which is your old book, <laughs> That Which Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at Broken Places. So I'll stick the link in the show notes to that, guys. If you'd like to pick up a copy, 
jump on yeah. there and um, you know click the Amazon link for me. That supports the show. Uh, Charlie, Linda, I'll stick the other books that you've written in there as well. Um, so Great. guys, check it all out. Um, certainly connect with Charlie and Linda. And you know, if you've got any questions directly for them, I'm sure they'll be open to um, you know connecting with you and, and and doing the best they can to assist in any way. So, uh, Charlie and Linda, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been great, and um, time is probably not of the essence. I would love to sit here and chat to you guys more about relationships because I really believe it's an important topic, not only for myself but everyone, and, and you can see that in in how, how the world is trending at the moment. I was delighted to be here with you today. I enjoyed it. It's always a pleasure, Lee. I look forward to the next time we talk. Absolutely. Thanks, guys, and all the best. Guys out there listening, connect at thehiddenwhy.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee martin Lutzi. until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon